is to start by saying, this is who God is, and we just start a story. And we need to hear it, because we live in a culture that's telling you there's an explanation for everything, and we need to have our hearts uh, re-enchanted. We need our, our imagination sanctified to say, there is a God who made the world, and he is here, and he is calling to us. And so... This morning, we're going to look at the next heading in your bulletin. You can see, we're, last week we talked about God summoning us. Uh, this week, we're going to see that God is seeking us throughout the service. And it's, it's just this big idea that God seeks us. He's seeking our heart. He's seeking the allegiance of our hearts. And we respond with confession. Uh, we respond with prayer. We respond with song. We respond with, well, generosity with giving. I mean, it's this wholehearted God coming after us to, to say, where are you? Where are you right now? And so Cain and Abel is going to help us understand the nature of our God and how to respond. And so let's read it and ask the Lord to bless our study this morning. This is God's Word from Genesis 4, 1 to 16. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke it to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't, do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who seeks, who pursues, and comes after us with questions. And uh, as David once prayed, your, your goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives. And so I pray that you would help us see that this morning and that your spirit would be here to teach us, to soften our hearts, and to change us by your grace. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1896, the British started a railroad uh, in Kenya and the, from Mombasa, trying to build a, a railroad from the coast of Kenya into to Uganda, to Lake Victoria, to, to help the trade routes. And it was a huge project. They brought in all kinds of workers uh, from India, mainly. And uh, this is during the colonial era. And about two years into the project, in 1898, the project stalled. Right? Because lions were sneaking into the camp and dragging these poor workers off into the bush. And it, it was becoming a problem. It was an issue. I mean, it got so bad that after they tried bonfires to keep them away, they've tried these th elaborate thorn fences to keep them away. The lions were still finding a way to attack. And so a lot of the workers, I mean, this is a true story, and a lot of the workers just left. They, they were terrified that that the British, with all their guns and all their might and all their, their wisdom, couldn't even protect them from the lions. And those lions were outsmarting even the lieutenant, John Henry Patterson, with, with his guns. He'd set an ambush and the lions would still escape. And there's a movie about this. It's called The Ghost in the Darkness. I don't know if you've seen it. It's from the 90s. And they're called that because nobody could see them coming. In the night, they would sneak in. And they became more bold. They would attack during the day. And, <laughs> I mean, the number of victims is listed as high as 135. You can actually see these lions stuffed in a museum in Chicago. But the, the question I want to ask as we, we jump into this is, how is it, I mean, these animals, when they were killed, it took eight men to carry one of these lions. How, how could something so big, so dangerous, be so hidden, even in the daylight. Right. You think about how cats attack. I mean, you've, you've seen National Geographic, or you have a house cat, or you've seen this before, right? Of they see their prey, and all of a sudden they crouch down, their ears flatten, and they hide. You know, in the in the savanna, it's the big tall grass that they can hide behind. And you know, if if the the prey, the gazelle or whatever it might be, sees the the predator, the lion, the cat then they have a pretty good shot of getting away. But if they're hidden, if they're crouched down, they're sneaking, right? They're on the menu. <laughs> and it's, it's such a powerful picture of what God says to Cain. That's, that's the literal word, that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, to, to rule you, to master you. It's, it's like a lion that's hiding in the savanna, in the grass, ready to attack and you have to fight that. And of course, we know that Cain didn't fight it, or he didn't go hunting, or he didn't know how to do it. I mean, it, it, his sin overtook him, and Abel was killed. And so if you, we start this question, why do we need to remind ourselves that God seeks us? It's because God is saying, look at how the world works. Look at how people are. Sin is crouching at the door in the heart of every human being. And you need warned every week. I need warned every week. And so if you think about Genesis, it's, it's telling us the history of the world, the why it is, and what's God's, what God is going to do about it. He presents a case study of these two brothers, 
I mean, some would argue that they were twins, but either way, they're from the same family, the same religious upbringing. They've, they've heard the same stories. One had faith and one did not. Both had sin in them. And one, right, sin devoured Cain, so to speak. And so this morning as we get ready to, to ask this question, why do we need God to seek us? We're going to see, one, that, that sin is seeking us first. <laughs> and because of that, we need God to seek us. And we need to hear him do that together week in and week out. And so we're going to look at this text and, and see what it tells us about the world and about our hearts. And then we're going to end by saying, this is why we do what we do on a Sunday. And so let's look at it. There's two points. The first is that sin is seeking you. And the second, that God is seeking you. So now, what's the context for this warning? God comes to Cain out of the blue, so to speak, and says, why are you angry? He has this conversation with him. And the context is worship. It's an act of worship. You remember, they, they brought these offerings. And Abel's the shepherd. He's, he's the keeper of the sheep. You got Cain, the, the farmer. And you got these two boys. You think about it. They've been told the history of the world. Since, and it didn't take very long. They got to hear the story of their parents. You know, it's hard to imagine what it would be like for Adam and Eve to watch their children fall and cry and, and be in pain and, and literally know that it's their fault. They, they would hear about Yahweh, this God who made them. He used to walk in the garden in the Eden, in paradise, uh, with no tears, no sorrow, no suffering, where there was no curse. And so these boys have heard about who God is. Uh, they've heard the story of grace. They've heard the, the bad news of what their parents had done and that God had promised that one day a son will come. I mean, you hear that even in Eve's comment after, after she gives birth to Cain. She says, I've given birth to a man with the Lord's help. I mean, there's almost a glimmer of hope that says, maybe this one will be the one to fix the thing that we made such a big mess of. And so Cain and Abel have some understanding that they belong to God and that they owe him worship. Right? And so this is what they do. They bring an offering. Cain brings the offering, the, the, the fruit of his labors. It's literal fruit, vegetables, the work, things from the ground. I don't know what it exactly it is. And Abel brings some kind of animal. Right? He, he, he kills it. He brings the fat. And what we're told is that God smiled at Abel's offering, and he found Cain's repulsive. And he turned his face away from Cain, and he turned his face towards Abel. And we're not exactly sure how that works. It's just what we're told, that God accepted Abel's offering, his worship, and he rejected Cain. It's both the person and the offering. I mean, you've got to hear the way it's said. Now, the question is why? What's, what's the difference? And it's not about meat and vegetables. <laughs> and, and nor, I don't, I don't think, I mean, maybe you've heard it put this way, that it's about the blood in, in Abel's offering. Because that, that law is not even in place yet. And the law to kill an animal for the forgiveness of sin didn't co- come till much later. And there's a word for a sin offering. That's not used here. It's something different. And so what, what I think we're, we're called to see is there's a couple clues. One, just look at the description 
of these offerings. Right? This is the kind of offering given. It's called a dedication offering. It's the Hebrew word that's used. It's, they're bringing a gift to God. It's just a small part of everything they have to say, I am yours and everything I have is yours. It's a, it's a symbol of their affection for God and their allegiance to God. It's similar to us giving a tithe. Right? It's, it's saying, I, I have everything from you, and I am saying, God, I believe in you, and I trust you, and, and that you're going to provide for me. Take this gift out of gratitude. And so what Abel does is he gives some of his animals. Not just any, but this is the important, the important adjective. It's the firstborn. Right? So he doesn't wait to see how many animals will be born and just kind of guess and see how much to give. He gives, he gives of the best right from the beginning. Right, he's saying, and Cain, it just says that he gives his harvest. And it's, it's not the first fruits, which is a common way to describe um, gifts to God. It's, it's almost like Cain just gives whatever he has lying around. But, but there's more to it than that. It's not just that God rejected Cain's offering because of the quality. It, it's more about the the attitude in which it was given. And we're told about this in Hebrews 11, 4, right? that by faith, Abel gave a better offering and God had accepted it because of his faith. And so you got this picture. Two guys go to worship. One has faith in God and one does not. And it's, this is really important to, to see because it's not like Cain is this horrible guy. You've got this picture of, of like a Sunday morning of all kinds of people coming together, giving what they have come to give to their God. They're responsible. They're hardworking. They're from the family. Outwardly, they're doing the right thing. And yet we're told that Abel gave it in faith, and Cain had other motives. But if he didn't have faith, there's some other reason he's coming. And faith in the Bible is always about trusting that God is going to provide for me. It's about saying, I can't earn God's acceptance. He has to pay for me. And so therefore, if Cain is not coming with faith, he's coming in worship to give an offering to try and get God's... He's trying to bribe God. He's trying to get God on his team to bless him, to, to make his job easier. Or, you know, We don't know exactly what he's looking for, but... Either way, he assumes that because he's there to give worship, uh, to, because he gives the fruit of his labor, that God owes him. And what we find, it says somehow Cain knew that God accepted Abel, Abel's offering and not, not his. And it made him angry. And his face fell, which is another way of saying he was depressed. And he's not just mad, he's completely turned inward and he's stewing and he, he can't believe he's depressed that this whole thing did not work out. And this is the context that this warning comes. It's worship. These two guys who've come to give to God their best and God says, look out, sin is there crouching, creeping in the, in the tall grass. You can't see it, but look out, you have to fight it. And so we're, we learn something here. Right? This is not just about Cain 
and how Abel is a better guy than Cain. I mean, I've heard that I read a bunch of sermons. That's kind of the direction it went. This is about sin, pictured in Cain's life. But sin dwells within every human being because of the fall. And so therefore, we have to say, what does this teach us about sin? And the first thing it's teaching us is that sin hides. It crouches like a, like a predator, like a cat. Right? Saying you can't see it, it seems harmless, but it wants to devour you. That's what dwells in every human heart. And I'll say it a different way. That sin lurks in us in unsuspecting places. And in this case, for, for Cain, it was something as innocent as being angry at his brother. And if you have a brother, you've gotten angry at him. <laughs> or just jealousy of someone else's success. You know, their, their life's better than mine. It's such a small thing. And yet God says, you, you can barely see the tip of the iceberg. There's something else uh, insidious and frightening and dangerous. I mean, you can just picture the conversation in, in your own head. You know, my brother Abel, that guy. He's, he's just, he's annoying. He's got this holier-than-thou attitude. or you know, you, I don't know how, how the conversation exactly went, but there's some kind of bitterness and resentment that Cain is saying, it's all his fault, it's not me. And God says, look out. Right? You can't blame your circumstances, it's about you. And I know this is a scary teaching and a hard teaching because it is a lot easier to say, you know, you got the Cains in the world and you got the Abels. But that's not why we have to gather and, and worship every week. It's, he's describing sin and saying that, and the, the scary part is Cain is just so ordinary because he gets angry. He gets jealous. He gets depressed. He gets down on himself. He's discouraged because all of his hard work isn't paying off like he imagined. I mean, it sound, sounds human. I mean, who doesn't get angry? Who doesn't deal with bitterness? Or who doesn't complain when life is hard? And, and God says, sin is crouching at your door. It's seeking to devour you. There's something in there that could take over. I'm trying to think of a good example of this. I mean, if you've been betrayed, and how easy it is to say, I'm angry, I know I should forgive, but I really don't want to forgive them right now. Right? And that's, a, that's a common thing, that's something we all have to fight with. And one of the pictures is, if you let that go, God is warning us, it's going to eat you alive. It's God's basically saying, look out. It's like letting a lion cuddle with you on the couch. It may not be hungry right now, <laughs> but it, it'll happen. Now, here's why this is important. Because I mean, we live in a culture that does not like to talk about sin. We live in a culture that doesn't like... We like to talk about our faults. We like to talk about the things we do wrong is having a medical problem behind it, and that's all true. But, you know, we don't want to talk about addiction as having some kind of moral responsibility about it. We want to talk about, you know, the, the victim side of it. 
And this is a complex conversation, so I, it's going to be hard, but just follow with me. And if you want to push back later, we can talk. But we, we really do need the vocabulary for sin, that sin is in every human being, because we need it to describe the world in which we live. To describe not only our actions, but the actions of others. Right, I mean, just recently, Dylan Roof, uh, the, the young man who walked into a church in South Carolina in the middle of a Bible study and ex executed, assassinated uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you describe that without the language of sin? I mean, you can call it evil, but, but where do you get your idea from evil from? What evil is? I mean, this is what happens when something like that takes place, a tragedy. You turn on the TV and everybody wants to know why. His parents, you know, did they, is there some kind of abuse in his life? Or is there, we bring out all the isms, racism, uh, you know, he's poor, he's angry, you know, they start trying to find some kind of justification and talk all the way around the issue. But when you know that sin lurks, it creeps, it crouches in innocent places, in seemingly innocent places, sin gives us the ability to describe the world for, as it really is. And give you an example. It's a fascinating case that, that FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, our president during World War II, he did not have the ability to even comprehend the reports that were coming out of Europe about the Holocaust, the horrible things being done to the Jews. And there's a memoir I was reading about uh, of his secretary. He was saying this. He would read, you know, about the death camps. And he just blew it off because civilized people wouldn't do such a thing. And he had this basic view that human beings are good. He couldn't get his mind wrapped around it. And it wasn't until when he found out it was true that he went to an Episcopal church and the priest said, here, read this, the Bible. Uh, re read some of these theologians who talk about sin and you'll better understand not only yourself but the world in which we live. I mean, God's telling us right at the beginning of this story that in ordinary human beings, you and me, uh, sin crouches, it creeps, it lurks, it hides, even in worship. That's Cain and Abel. I mean, we, we come with mixed motives. And that seed of selfishness, that seed of bitterness, that seed of anger has the potential, right? it doesn't come out all the time, but it has the potential to grow into murder. Right? And I, like I said, I know this is hard. I, mean, I had a conversation this past month with a, a non-believer who was saying, it just, it just seems like when I look at the world, people are devolving. You know, I, I can't make sense of all the anger and all the accusation happening on the Internet and in politics. And, and he, didn't have a, he didn't have a category for sin. And God says, even something as simple as, I've done this, I've worked hard, I deserve this, can turn into something much more sinister. So yeah, sin hides, it crouches. The second thing we learn is that sin overpowers, and this, to me, is the scarier part. Because it's, it's, it's like a lion that's, that's coming, and it's, it's ready to pounce, it's ready to attack, it's, it's hidden in the grass. You might know there's danger, but you're not too concerned because you can't see it. 
but it says it's trying to rule over you, rule over us. Right? It's, it's not just that you can't see it, but that it wants to take control over your life and set you on a trajectory that's very difficult, almost impossible even to come back from on your own. I, mean, I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, if you, get a- if you have ever gotten angry at anybody, said, said you fool, uh, we said worse driving, <laughs> you're liable to judgment. It's not just do not murder. The issue is anger. Because anger, according to Jesus, has this potential to take over your life and consume you to the point where you have no care or concern about your neighbor. Anger makes you guilty of murder. Right? And so it's, it's this picture that, that, that what you sow, you will reap, and that what you, the decisions you make has the potential, the power, to take over your life. It's sin. So you think about those who lie once, and how many times you have to lie to cover up that lie. It takes over. Uh, those who lust... The, the pow- just the sheer power that, that takes over. Those who um, say, I want the freedom to do what I want with my body are the ones who, who end up in a world where nobody's faithful. And it takes over. It's a power. Um, if you steal, right, there's no honor among thieves, is the saying, right? It's because <laughs> those who steal end up living in a world where it's really easy to be stolen from because you're surrounded by people who aren't trustworthy. Sin crouches, but it, it's also a power that wants to devour you. It wants to take over. It's trying to, well, take control. And this, this is what God says to ordinary people. Now the question is, is do you believe that? And I would argue is... Um, Day in and day out, the repetition of light and the, the un... It, you know, we're not in Cain's situation where we feel like we want to kill somebody all the time. And so we, we get dulled to sleep. We only see the tip of the iceberg and say, you know, I've got these things going on that are irritating, but surely they're not that bad. And God says, look out. It's an issue. And it's in ordinary people. You know, there's a, several years ago in 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace was doing an interview with, uh, talking about the Nuremberg trials. And he's interviewing one of the, the witnesses, a Jewish man named Yehiel Denur. And Adolf Eichmann was the defendant. And Eichmann was one of the architects of the death camps. And one of the this is one of the most baffling things, is how can people who are so educated, so to speak, I mean, the, the, the people at the top had PhDs. Ordinary people that we would call civilized. And so the interview, Mike Wallace is getting ready for this interview to interview the, the witness who is going to testify against Eichmann in the, the Nuremberg trials. And I, Mike Wallace starts at asking this question, how is it possible for a man to act like this? an executioner of millions of Jews. Was he a monster? Was he a madman? Or was he something even more terrifying? Was he just ordinary? 
And so Yehiel Denor comes into the courtroom, and when he was called to the stand, he looks at Eichmann on the way up, and he just stops. And he starts sobbing, and he just passes out. And you can imagine what this would be like. I mean, it was just complete chaos. And so Wallace wants to know, what in the world was going through your mind that would cause such an extreme reaction? And this is what Denor replied. He said, you know what? It wasn't fear. It wasn't terror. I was scared about myself. Because I looked at Eichmann, this man that I thought was godlike for years because of the power he had over me. And I looked at him and saw he was just like me. Human. And so Wallace summarized this conversation by saying, Eichmann is in all of us. It's chilling. And it's, this is what the Bible says. Sin is crouching. Sin is a power. And when you see the effect of it, unless you have the vocabulary to describe it, you're not going to be able to know how to treat it. And so we've got to turn around and ask ourselves, um, what predator is lurking in the savanna in your heart? <laughs> Pride, anger, lust, greed, fear, anxiety. You know, I always heard growing up that the famous saying by John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I mean, it's trying to paint this picture that in all of us, passivity is the most, um, is one of the worst things we could do. Because nobody remains neutral. And this is why we need the good news. That God seeks you. That he knows all of this, and yet he still comes. Because look at Cain. I mean, notice what God does not do. This is incredible if you think about, you know, Normally, people think God is the cranky Old Testament God and the New Testament God. He's the one who's compassionate. He's the one who's the good counselor, the comforter. No, it starts right here in Genesis. Because God doesn't wait until Cain is overpowered by his anger and jealousy. He comes to him right before, right in the beginning, and says, why are you angry? He doesn't come with a big stick and start beating him before he does anything. He's saying, you've got this thing called sin, and you need to fight it. And he starts a counseling conversation. God seeks. He says, why are you angry? Why are you depressed? What's going on? Don't you see that what you are, what is tearing you up on the inside has the potential to not only tear you up on the outside, but to hurt other people? And Cain, of course, responds silently because he wants to blame Abel. You know, it's his fault. It's not in here, it's out there. And God says, look, look at yourself, look at your heart. What are you worried about? What are you angry about? Look inside and there you will see, there you will see yourself. And so here's what we need to see. Look at the tenderness of our God, the God who chases down us addicts, so to speak, to confront us before we go off <laughs> and, and go off like the prodigal son into the, into, to get ourselves in trouble. He's going right after our affections, right after our heart to say, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? You need help. He's like a doctor coming in and saying, here's your diagnosis. What are you going to do about it? Here's the cure. You need to humble yourself. You need to, to be honest. 
and you need to forgive your brother. Any of you, you think about the picture that people have of God, and maybe you, sometimes I do, especially when I have a guilty conscience. We tend to think of, of God saying, here's the standard, you haven't met it, I'm cranky, you know, get your life, here's the big stick, I'm going to beat you into submission. You know, life stinks, what have you done wrong? You're being punished. You must be, God must be disciplining you. And you're seeing here that God's discipline starts before you ever get to the point where you've fallen. He's saying, where are you? Right? You, get this, you don't see that picture here. This is God the Father coming to his children right, off, right before they, they start this pursuit of drugs that's going to lead them into the slums never to get out again, right? Or ho- however you want to picture that. He says, come back from the ledge. But it's not only that. Even after Cain's sin, you see how God confronts him with justice. Right? You got the first murder, this fratricide, because of self-righteousness and pride and an attitude that says, I wanted to do it myself. And God says, what happens to Abel? Where is he? It's almost like God is just baiting him to repent. To come out of the dark, to be open and honest about it, and all Cain can do is say, well, who, what am I, his babysitter? And so God has this conversation, your brother's, brother's blood is crying out to me, it's crying out for justice. Cain, there's consequences, but even in the consequences, even in God's justice, there's a tenderness, a compassion, because God doesn't give up on him. You see that? God's justice is being assaulted by Abel's blood. Somebody has to pay because Abel is dead. But God's love for Cain, the sinner, still continues because when Cain is completely consumed with himself and saying, I can't even deal with the consequences, God says, fine, here's a mark that'll protect you from everyone else the rest of your days. I mean, Derek Kidner, a commentator, says, you know, God's concern for the innocent is matched only by his care for the sinner. That even this mark on Cain, whatever that was, and it was a tattoo, I, I don't know, we don't know. But it's a mark of grace to protect him. And the, the language used is really interesting. It's a sign. It's the same thing to describe, same word used to describe the rainbow, the sign of God's covenant, the sign that he will not destroy sinners again by a flood, by judgment like that. And so you got this picture where God says to Cain, you are refusing to look at yourself. You're refusing my grace, but I'm going to protect you all the days of your life, even, even though you have a hard heart. You see that? That God seeks with grace and justice. Cain doesn't get off the hook. I mean, it's basically God saying, Cain, I would pay for this if you would just be honest. If you would trust me. Now, what do we do with all this? God seeks us. What's his goal? And the answer is repentance. To be honest, right? He says, you have to master this thing called sin. And the, how do you master something that's hidden? We need help. And so we confess it. Because what, I mean, you think about it, what would happen if Cain turned around and said, you're right, 
I did it. It was my fault. I wanted to. I wanted your favor. I was trying to get it. I didn't. You know, I was blamed him for my problems. What if he came clean? Maybe we should turn around and say, what happens when we repent? If we are honest about ourselves, about what's going on. And the answer is, there's a better blood than Abel's. Because right? we could all tell our stories of how, how some, a simple thing like anger has hurt ourselves and those around us, which, cry, which, cry, which cries out for justice, that God would pay, that we would pay for it in God's economy. And so what we read in Hebrews is that we don't come uh, to the blood of Abel that cries out for us to be punished, to be destroyed, to be rejected, to be cast out. We come to a better blood than Abel's. It's a blood that's seeking us with grace and justice for our forgiveness. That if you would repent, if you would be honest and say, I have this predator lurking inside my heart, and it's there are times where it consumes me and I run away from the God who loves me. God says, look, I've already sought you. You got this picture of what's the blood calling you to look at? The cross. And the cross is the place where God sought us. Um, You could say Jesus was devoured by the predator that is sin. I mean, he was, he was swallowed up by it. He was destroyed. I mean, he became a lamb to be, to be destroyed by a lion, the devil. Uh, he went under the judgment that our sins deserve. So that, right, that, that we would have a blood that would cry out for our acceptance to show us that he is seeking us in, in our repentance and in his justice, even in the consequences, because he wants us to, to admit who we are. All right, so, I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, one, this is the good news, is when you confess your sins, we're told God is faithful and just to, confess, uh, to, to forgive our sins. And what it's telling you is that in God's Injustice, you can't be punished for the same thing twice. And so that if you confess it, because Jesus paid for it, that blood is crying out saying, you cannot be punished for what has been already paid for. Which means when you confess your sins and you're honest as God seeks you, he, he can't rub it at your face in it. Right? It's done. It's over with. It's gone. But second, what it's calling us to do is to bring it out into the light. Right? When, when God says sin is crouching, it's hidden, you can't see it. He's saying, all right, I want you to burn down all the grass around the predator so we can see, see you as you really are and let me go to war for you. And your battle cry is that Jesus paid it all. It's, it's already finished. But it starts with Confession. And that, that's what takes the power away. As you, you be honest about yourself with your God in, in full light of his holiness. As he names it, he sees it. Because ironically, as you see God seeking you at your worst, that's what gets us to respond to him uh, with our best. 
We want to give him our best to try and get him on our side. And he says, no, you've got it all backwards. Bring me your worst, and that'll change your heart to want to give you your best because you love me as you see that I first loved you. So what does this have to do with Sunday mornings? I'll run through this quick. We're running out of time here. Every Sunday, we gather together to retell this story that God has called us. He took the initiative, but in worship, he's seeking us. He's saying, I want you to be honest. Just because you're here on a Sunday morning, you're, you're a sinner too. You need, you have the past grace that forgives everything, but you need the present grace to, to, to work on your heart. Right? And so God says, I mean, essentially what we're doing when we confess our sins, God's saying, why are you angry? Why have you been upset this week? Why are you depressed? What is... What have you consumed your thoughts this week uh, that, that, that you've been ignoring me? You know, what are, what are the things that are hiding back there? Let's, let's bring them into the light, bring them into my presence and see that I am with you. I am your Father. I am in control. It's forgiven in Christ. Right. And so that changes our worship. Because think about what a lifetime of confession is going to do. As you week in, week out, you learn to say, it's my fault. Because that starts to filter into your life during the week. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring improvements into your communication in your marriage. Because when you're told you're wrong, you can say, you know, it might be true. And it probably is true. <laughs> or in the workplace or in, with your kids, you know. Corporate worship is designed to, to equip us to serve the Lord throughout the rest of the week. And it even something as painful as confession of sin is saying, let's learn humility together as we go out and try and live it, live it in light of what Christ has done. You know what else it's going to mean? We're going to sing songs that are different. We're going to be honest. Right, if we're going to sing things like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, It Saved a Wretch Like Me. We get to, we get to insult ourselves. <laughs> You're hearing the truth. Because worship should reflect the world as it is, as sinners come into the presence of a holy God. So we sing, foul to the fountain I fly. Or like, from come thou fount of every blessing, chain me to your goodness, God, like a fetter. Bind my wandering heart to you. Right? These are prayers of confession. of saying there's that lion in there and it's trying to take control. God, help me. I mean, I remember this. There's nothing more frustrating of coming to church to try and sing songs that you feel like you're lying while you're singing. You know, I surrender all. No, that's my problem. I haven't surrendered anything. That's why I feel so bad. <laughs> so, this is what I'm trying to get you to see. That even though we talked about bad news, when we come into worship, we're saying, God, seek, he's after your good. Through confession. All right, so, so we can say, yes, Lord, there's a ravenous predator lurking in my heart. It's hurt me, it's hurt those I love, it's hurt you as I've rejected you. Praise God that Christ paid for it. Now help me. And that's, that's a sacrifice. I mean, the psalmist said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God loves, he does not despise, he runs to it. 
So this is why I would argue we need to be in church every week. I mean, there's going to be weeks we go through the, the motions, of course. But when you pull confession out of your life, um, you're, you're withdrawing yourself from God's questions, which has, well, the predator lurks. Right? Come as you're able, of course. But this is God's, the main and ordinary way that God is working to change us to conform us into the image of his son. And so what we do is we bring our offering, as small as it looks, and it's just a symbol of our allegiance and our affection, that God, I love you for what you've done. Help me serve you this week. You starting to see the, the rhythm of worship? Look, God says, see my kindness and repent. Let's pray. Father, we heard bad news. And I pray that for those of us who have sensitive consciences, um, that you would give us the context to hear the bad news. And that is, um, as believers, we hear this and as those who have been fully enveloped and embraced by your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that your, your seeking would help us to be honest about ourselves and that, uh, that you would be glorified as we, we learn to, to worship you here on a Sunday morning. And again, that this practice of confession that we've been talking about, Lord, that it would filter into our lives, that you would bring healing to the broken relationships, uh, first with you and then with our neighbors. And so, we, Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us alone and you come after our hearts uh, with the kindness of the cross <laughs> rather than our destruction. It is good news. Help us to believe, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.